Hello, and welcome to Journey Church. Let's take out our Bibles and listen in. Thank you, Rob. Um, So this week, it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, This passage is primarily out of Acts 19, but it's a lot going on. There's a big story, and so I'm actually going to present it in a little bit different way so that we can kind of weave the story in with some of the background information. Um, There's just a lot that happens that God does in this city. And so um, I'm going to pray, and then we will dive in. Father, I just thank you for your word. Thank you for the work that you do in us and through us and around us. God, I pray that your spirit will speak to us now, that we would hear the message of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. She's a beautiful city, nestled against the hills overlooking the floodplain, that stretches to the Aegean Sea. Her port bustles with the restless energy of a commercial link between two continents. Her streets filled with merchants from around the Mediterranean and beyond are lined with architecture to rival the eternal city herself. My Ephesus, the capital of Rome and the province of Asia, shines brightly with the light of Roman civilization. Legend says that She was founded by an oracle come to life, and her roots go back to the queen of the Amazons. For centuries, she has been home to the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world, built around a piece of the heavens come to earth, the stone that fell from the sky. Many have tried to destroy the temple, some even succeeded, but the goddess will have her temple and we are but her servants. The moon goddess has blessed us with abundance. We dare not tempt her wrath with ingratitude. For many years, travelers from all around have found their home here in the bosom of this fair city. A walk through any market square and you will meet Greeks, Romans, Egyptians, Africans, Persians, Syrians, the occasional Spaniard, even some Jews. There are the occasional squabbles, but prosperity brings a certain level of peace. Why would anyone spoil such a beautiful city who has been so good to her people? At least that's how it was. Then that man came. When he first came, he spent some time arguing with the Jews in the synagogue. It seemed he brought some new ideas about their God, but not much came of it. He left some friends behind and went back across the sea to Macedonia. When he returned a few months later, however, that is a different story. I wish this man Paul had never come back. First, there were the lunatics. No, sorry, I should be kind. Fanatics? Sure, I guess that sounds better. Coming into town, he met a group of men and began talking to them. These men had heard a similar message, but it seems it was incomplete. Once this Paul explained things to them, every one of them began speaking in different languages and and prophesying, telling people about something called a a Messiah and and resurrection of the dead and a new kingdom. Sounds like madness, treason even. Then this Paul returned to the Jewish synagogue and began arguing with them again. But now it seemed to get more heated. 
Soon rumors began to fly about this man and his followers. They taught about something called the Way. Some said they were rebels and that this man had been arrested and thrown out of cities for inciting riots. Finally, the man decided to move out of the synagogue and teach in one of the many lecture halls in this brilliant city. That may have appeased the Jews, but now Paul's words were spreading to other citizens. And not just his words. More rumors sprang up that people could be healed by him, and he didn't even need to touch them or see them. People began touching their, their handkerchiefs and their aprons to this man and taking him to the sick. And the sick had been healed just by touching that piece of cloth. You can imagine the uproar this has caused. Wherever he goes, the people flock to him, desperate to reach him or touch him. It's causing such a mess in the streets. Oh, there was one story that was pretty entertaining. I guess there were a few Jewish healers who came to town, seven of them, I think. And they heard of this man, so they, they thought they could imitate him. This man speaks of the power of another, a, a man by the name of Jesus. So the Jewish healers, exorcists they called themselves, tried to heal someone by casting out a spirit, using the power of Paul and Jesus. This spirit turned on them and said, I know Jesus, and I've heard of Paul, but I do not know you. <laughs> and then this man, who, who had the spirit in him, he, he turns around and he, he strips these guys naked, beats them up, and sends them running through the streets. <laughs> oh, that was a sight to see. But the story doesn't end there. Just the other day, a, a big group of, gathered in one of our squares talking about this Jesus. Many of them began telling about their practices of magic and divination, denouncing them as evil and burning their magic books right in the square. There must have been a, a thousands of silver pieces worth destroyed. Needless to say, the magicians of our city are not happy with this. And today, all of this finally came to a head. It was one thing when this was just the Jews and a few of our people who were sympathetic to them, but now it is spreading among all the people. And they've begun to renounce the goddess. Demetrius, one of our best silversmiths, stirred up all the craftsmen because their statues of Artemis are no longer selling. Paul has told people that they should only worship this Jesus he is always preaching about and that Artemis is a false god. How dare he? He's already ruining our business and now he wants to bring the wrath of the gods upon us? The people are rioting in the streets and that, that coward Paul refuses to even show his face. We did manage to find some of his followers, so we're going to see justice done one way or another. So that's the story of Paul in Ephesus, told from a perspective of someone who loves the city, who lives in the city, who is just watching this unfold. And I think the first question for me is, what is happening here? Why is there so much upheaval and turmoil in this place? And I think that the reason is because this is the reality of the gospel. It may surprise you, but the gospel is an inherently disruptive story. Too often we think of it simply as a personal acknowledgement of who Jesus is. But that's just the ground floor of the gospel. 
It's so much wider and broader and deeper than we realize. And when that intersects with our lives, that's when we get all this disruption and this turmoil. And so I think we need to start today by just defining what is the gospel. We use that term a lot. And if you've been around church much, you've heard it and it's used in a variety of different ways. But the reality is gospel simply means good news. That's all it means. But when we look at that phrase good news and we look at it back in how it's used in the Bible, there's an important part in Luke 4. When Jesus is starting out his ministry, he uses this phrase to say what he has come to do. So listen to what Jesus says in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. He's in the synagogue and he's given a scroll to preach from. And this is what he says. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is good news. Freedom, recovery, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. These are good things. And this is so much more than just simply saying, yes, Jesus, you are God. There is something that's going to happen when the good news comes. Jesus brings all of these things. He brings good news. He preaches to the poor. He proclaims freedom. He releases people from spiritual bondage. He heals people who were blind, who were sick. He heals people who had no way of healing themselves. And he sets them free of their sin. So that's the good news. But it's even more than that. Because it's about a story, right? It's, if it's good news, that means it's a story. And it's a story that goes all the way back to Genesis. And will continue on through all of eternity. And it starts back in Genesis when God creates everything. And he is ruler over all. And he appoints man to rule under him. And we mess it up. And we create a rival kingdom. We say, you know what? We want to have our own kingdom. And so it's a story of two rival kingdoms. And this is the part where the good news doesn't sound so good. Because any good story has to have conflict. And so this is the conflict that we have set up a rival kingdom in opposition, in rebellion to the creator of the universe. And that's the story of the Old Testament. Is God reaching out to people and trying to bring his kingdom to earth and people rejecting him? Maybe they obey for a while, but they're not able to be that bridge that brings the two kingdoms back together. Until we get the story of Jesus. And Jesus acts as that bridge, but he acknowledges that there are two separate kingdoms here. That there are two rival kingdoms. When he's on trial before Pilate. He says to Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. He says, yes, I'm a king. You are right to call me a king. But my kingdom is a totally different kingdom. 
You are a king, then said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. The truth that he is a king, that there is a heavenly kingdom that is crying out. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, Jesus says. And so the continuation of the gospel is what Jesus came to do, is to reunite the kingdoms of this earth to the kingdom of heaven. And we see that in Jesus teaching us to pray. He prays the Lord's Prayer, and he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, God. Your kingdom come here to earth, and he is the beginning of that. His ministry was to inaugurate that kingdom of heaven invading this earth and reuniting with the kingdom of this world. And that's going to continue all through history until we get to the end of time. And in Revelation, we see a glimpse of this. In Revelation 11, verse 15, an angel sounds a trumpet and it says, There were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. That's the gospel. It's a kingdom. It's not just a message. It's not just a decision. It is a kingdom. A kingdom that reunites heaven and earth the way God intended it to be in the beginning. And so if that's the gospel, how does the gospel come into this world? Well, it starts with Jesus, but Jesus doesn't stay here physically on earth. He actually tells his disciples, it's better for me to not stay here because then you get the Holy Spirit. You get the one who will actually continue the work and spread it throughout the entire earth. And if we look at this story, this story demonstrates that. It starts with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Just like how Acts started. Just like how all of God's work starts. It starts with the Holy Spirit coming, on, coming down in power. Jesus' ministry started with him being baptized and the Spirit coming down on him with power. And then in Acts 1, we see Jesus says, hey, wait here until the Spirit comes. Acts 2, boom, Spirit comes. And when the Spirit comes, he is the power of God in this world. And so it will come into conflict with the powers of this world. There is no way that the Spirit comes down into a world that is a rebel kingdom and doesn't create conflict. Because his presence is going to confront the idols of this world who claim power over this earthly kingdom. And this is where the decision comes in. This is where the decision plays a part. I have a choice. I have a choice. I will either choose to serve the Holy Spirit or I will choose to pursue my idols. Jesus told his disciples, you cannot serve two masters. You've got to choose one. And in that time, when we are working through that, when we are choosing to change allegiance from one kingdom to another, there is conflict. There is struggle. Gospel forces this choice. Where is my allegiance? 
And once we answer yes to the Holy Spirit, once we say, yes, I want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, then he starts doing some work. And I want to show you guys how in this passage we see the process of his work. And I think this is a pattern that he uses throughout not just this passage, but throughout history, throughout people's lives throughout history. The first thing he does is he breaks down barriers. So we see when the Holy Spirit comes down, these men start speaking in different tongues, which means that this gospel message, this kingdom is being diversified. It's surpassing language barriers now. Humans create barriers. It's just part of our wiring. It's what we do. And I think that's part of our sin nature, that we always see what's different and we fear that. Or worse, we're just apathetic toward it. The Holy Spirit comes and he breaks those barriers and he seeks to bring unity. He wants to bring us together under his banner as one body, one church, one kingdom. But the world is going to resist that. And we see that as Paul goes into the synagogues and he's teaching. And some people accept, but a lot of them start to get really upset about it because he's challenging their kingdoms. He's challenging the idols that they have made. And so they start to defame the message. They start to spread rumors. And they stir up hatred. They stir up anger. They stir up division because that's how this world, the kingdom of this world, reacts when it's threatened. And then we see the next step. The Holy Spirit brings healing. It's physical healing and it's spiritual healing. We see people who are healed who couldn't walk. Now they can walk. Who are blind and now they can see. We see people delivered from evil spirits that are tormenting them. And Jesus, when his Holy Spirit comes, he delivers us through the truth. The truth of who he is. And that these things no longer have power over us. Because he is the power. And it's, it's so interesting how the world tries to imitate this. We see these, these guys are called the seven sons of Sceva. And they try to follow that example and bring healing, but they can't because the world's healing, it only offers temporary solutions. Our, our culture is a self-help type culture when we love to just redefine things that are bad, redefine things that are wrong, and, and instead of actually dealing with them. But Jesus brings truth to it, and he brings deliverance through that. And then the third thing that he does is he, he destroys the power of idols. You know, in Ephesus, there were literal idols. There were statues of Artemis that were being sold. There was a temple to Artemis, a false god. There were literal idols. We also see people who are renouncing things like witchcraft. But we have a lot of idols in our lives too. We have a lot of things that we put ahead of the kingdom of God. We have a lot of things that we cling to that are just part of the kingdom of this world. And the world is going to defend those idols. The craftsmen of 
Ephesus are like, well, but it's so much profit. It gets us so much money. What's wrong with it? It's no big deal. And it's when people start to defend their idols that we see the drastic difference between the priorities of God's kingdom and the priorities of this world. Because the priorities of this world are self. It's me. If it profits me, what's wrong with it? God's kingdom, it's about what is truly right and what is truly good. It is about God. So we see how the Holy Spirit works in this place and brings all sorts of chaos and disruption. But my question is, anytime I read something like this, and I look at this and go, this is not exactly my experience. I've never seen a riot because people were preaching the gospel. And so I have to ask myself, is this the norm? Is this actually what I should expect in my life? When the Holy Spirit comes in and God's kingdom invades my life, should I expect disruption to look like this? And I think to a certain extent we would agree, well, yes, at conversion, when someone first makes that decision, we can understand that, hey, yeah, they're going to be wrestling with those kingdoms and trying to figure out which kingdom they're in, what's, what, what's part of which kingdom. Um, you know, Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 10. And this is kind of a surprising passage because we usually think of him as being so peaceful and kind. But he says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That's a drastic change of priorities. Jesus is saying, when you come to my kingdom, you don't get to set the priorities anymore. You don't get to set the agenda. You are in my kingdom, not your kingdom. And again, I think we can kind of see that when we first come to him, that we've been living this life. When we first surrender, we're very much aware of how much we need him. And we see him break down that biggest barrier of all, the barrier between me and God. <laughs> That's the biggest barrier that the Holy Spirit breaks down for us. And then he brings me into this family of believers, a ragtag group from all walks of life. And so that's breaking down some barriers. We often see incredible healing, both physically, emotionally, spiritually even, accompanying conversion. And in that moment, God destroys the power of whatever idol it was that was keeping us from him. Whatever we were clinging to in rebellion against him. But the problem is that, I don't know about you guys, but I have a lot of bad habits in my life that I have to overcome. And so in that, I think we see that this is an ongoing process, that God's continually building up this, this argument for his kingdom in our lives and saying, look, there's another area that, that you need to work on. 
And we also have these other more subtle idols that kind of creep into our lives. And so Luke, when he talks about that same idea from Matthew, he adds this. He says, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. It's not just take up your cross once, make that decision one time, you're good, God's happy with you, you're in the kingdom. No, he says, it's a daily decision. Sometimes hourly, sometimes every minute, sometimes the seconds in between breaths. It's a daily surrender. This should be a part of our ongoing journey realigning our allegiances and priorities to a new kingdom is a constant battle in our hearts and our minds. It's easy to get comfortable and think that we've got it all figured out. But God wants to continue shaping us and bringing us further and deeper into his kingdom so that we can bring others into that kingdom too. And so he's going to continue to work to remove idols from our lives. And I know this because this is my story. I grew up in the church. And when you grow up in the church, you just kind of assume a lot of the basic priorities of the kingdom. And you can look a lot like a Christian without actually knowing him. And I made a decision very young to follow Jesus. And I fully believe that I meant that decision and everything that came along with it. But I couldn't have understood the implications for a broader life. And so my conversion wasn't terribly dramatic. There wasn't this drastic moment of me going off in full rebellion and him bringing me back. I had already inculcated many of the priorities of Jesus by virtue of how I was raised. So it wasn't this dramatic shift. But as I've grown and as I've matured, I've seen how he's had to work to tear down idols in my life. He's had to disrupt things in my life to take some of those idols out of their place. I mean, the first one that I can really think of is, it's just the the idol of self-righteousness. You know, it's easy when you grow up in the church to think, well, I don't do this and I don't do that. And look at all the Bible verses I know. And hey, I look like a great person. I look like a good Christian. But the Holy Spirit brought some people into my life that challenged me in that. And eventually I came to realize that, you know what, there's no such thing as a good Christian. You either are or you aren't. And we all have baggage that we're working through. We all have things that God is working on in our hearts. And so sometimes it's really obvious, but honestly, the harder ones are the ones that are deep down inside that no one ever sees. And so the Holy Spirit had to break those barriers of legalism in my life, where I thought being a Christian meant following a certain set of rules. And he had to heal some things in me, a lot of shame and guilt and anxiety about those rules. Anytime I broke one of those rules, it was like, oh no, am I still saved? Does Jesus still love me? 
but he's brought a ton of healing through his grace. And he's destroyed the need for me to look and act and sound a certain way to prove that I'm a Christian. More recently, one that he has worked on in my life is just the idols of comfort and self-sufficiency. I grew up here in the Caneo Valley. I've lived here for over 30 years. This is the epitome of suburbia. There is literally suburbia park just down the street from my wife and I. We live in suburbia. This is a nice place to live. It's comfortable. It's a place where the American dream looks pretty amazing, where you work hard, you go to school, you get the degree, you get the good job, you work that job, you have the family, the 2.5 kids. Well, we kind of overachieved on that one. Um, but it, there, it's so easy to think that that is the good life, that that is the life that Jesus is calling us to. And it's not to say that there's anything wrong with living in this place. I love living here. But in that, I had developed a lot of prejudices about people who didn't experience that. I had hardened my heart toward people who had to struggle for a living. People who grew up in poorer environments. People who had broken families. And God had to humble me. He had to take that away from me. And for a long period of time, I didn't have steady work. I didn't have, we weren't making enough money to really make ends meet. And we had to depend on the help of other people. And I will tell you that walking into a food bank, applying for government assistance, is one of the most humbling things that I've ever had to walk through. Because I had built an idol of my own comfort and self-sufficiency. And God tore that down. He broke the power of my pride, my having to prove that I can do it all and that I've got it all figured out. That's not to say that I've mastered these things. God's still working on a lot of these things in me. But I think this is a really important message for the church right now. For all of us. Because we're living in a time of upheaval and chaos. I have never seen a more divided, chaotic time in my life. And it's easy to blame it all on things, persecution, political ideologies that we disagree with. But you know what? It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why these things are happening. It doesn't matter if it's persecution or politics or aliens. I, I don't know. This has been such a weird year, it wouldn't surprise me. But I think this is a teachable moment for us. Maybe the Holy Spirit is breaking down some barriers that we've placed in our lives and in our churches. By taking away our buildings and our comfortable Sunday morning routines, maybe he's asking us, is this really important? Is this really the kingdom? 
Maybe he's calling us to repent of ways that his church has been complicit in perpetuating racial barriers. Maybe he's saying, hey, we need to reflect, we need to repent. We need to mourn with those who mourn. Maybe this is a moment for us to be healers in our community, in our state, in our nation, in our world, or maybe even just in our families. Instead of buying into this world's temptation to perpetuate division, Maybe God is calling us to step out of the shadow of the idols that he's already defeated and live a robust, wild, uncontrollable gospel fueled by his Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I stand convicted that too often my default is to go back to the kingdom of this world. I thank you for your conviction. As I prepared for this, as I was reading and studying and just pondering your word, God, I pray for all of us that we would start to be able to see this time as an incredible opportunity to pursue your kingdom above all the other things that we want to put in front of it. God, I pray for those who are hurting right now. I pray that you would bring healing. God, I thank you for your grace that just washes over us so that we don't, we don't have to be perfect to be a part of your kingdom, we just need to surrender. Holy Spirit, show us your kingdom and how incredibly big it is. How high, how deep, how wide your love is and your kingdom is. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want more information about this teaching or another teaching, visit us online at journeyto.org. Come see us at our Sunday service, 10 a.m. at the Boys and Girls Club of America, Marion and John E. Anderson Youth Center, located at 1980 East Avenida de las Flores in Thousand Oaks, California.